A lot of people and organizations are promoting the idea of genius hour or 20% time. This idea that you give your learners an hour a week or 20% of the time each week to work on projects. Now, this is a great idea if you think about the fact that you want students to actually develop critical and analytical thinking through working on projects. The only problem is most students don't know how to take advantage of the 20% time. They're not prepared for it. And is that really enough time? In this Learner's Mindset discussion, Dr. Sue Bedard and I are going to explore the idea of flipping the genius hour or 20% time and explore how we can actually prepare students for life and prepare them for the test by spending 80% of our time in authentic learning opportunities, just as long as we create the right learning environment, and then spending another 15 to 20% of the time preparing them for the test. You can have it both. You can prepare them for life and prepare them for the test, but you've got to flip Genius Hour. So in this session, um, I really want to explore the notion of Genius Hour, 20% mm -hmm. time, um, inquiry-based learning, all these ideas that um, the author A.J. Giuliani uh, recently posted on his blog and he talked about the research behind these ideas and how effective it was and how important it is to incorporate these things into the classroom. Uh, now, um, in his post, he talked about the fact that somebody that he respects, Ewan McIntosh uh, from mm -hmm. the UK, yep. suggested that 20% time genius hour doesn't work. And time could be better spent in other areas. And, and the reason that Macintosh said it doesn't work is that the system of education that we have doesn't really allow for this. <clears throat> Adding that 20% time without doing something to change the system isn't an effective use of time. So I think Macintosh identified an issue that I'd like to talk about today. And that is, these ideas are great in and of themselves, 20% time, genius hour, inquiry-based learning. They're wonderful, but if you use them as a treatment without changing the actual system of education, I don't think they're effective. Now, I, I wanna set the context a bit more. I would argue that if we want 20% time to be effective or genius hours or these other wonderful inquiry-based learning processes, we have to actually change thinking about learning. We have to change our approach to learning and we have to change the learning environment. If mm -hmm. we don't really address those three factors, we are not going to get the most out of those um, activities like Genius Hour. So this is the context of where we're going. Thoughts before we dive in and, and really take this apart. Well, there's too many of them. We don't have time. Uh, I totally agree. You can't just slap another Band-Aid on when, it, when you need like a whole surgery. And that's kind of like what you're saying there because we can't, schools aren't set up to change the curriculum delivery per se, but the ideas that are out there and getting the kids invested in their choice and the, I, I wanna learn about this really needs to happen because that's how our world is starting to unfold. The creativity is what's driving the world. Yeah, it, it is. Our world is changing and I don't think our schools are changing in they that regard. Now, both you and I have the privilege or honor of working in a program where we give students choice, ownership, and voice through authentic learning opportunities. Originally, it was a digital learning leading program at Lamar University, and that has evolved into applied digital learning. And we work with hundreds of educators at a variety of levels, right from K to 12 to corporate training uh, to yep, people in higher secondary. ed. Yep. And in the first course where we start looking at their innovation project, um, and then applying their innovation project. One of the biggest challenges that I'm seeing, and, and I, I want your input on this, is that most of these educators are constrained by the system. Learning is delivering content, sharing information, lecturing, maybe some group work, and then giving students assignments or tests where they verify that the content has been received and the students can at least do something with it in theory. That's learning. That's yeah. learning. No. And that's the environment that they have. And when we start asking them to come up with a project, whether it's blended learning, e portfolios, maker spaces, coding, 
project-based learning, all these wonderful opportunities, they like the idea, but they really do not understand how to do it. Not only do they not understand how to do it, you know, these people are working on a master's degree. They often have never been exposed to having the freedom to choose a project, to work on something authentic, and to take ownership of anything. So they themselves do not know how to experience this. And it's a very, very difficult process. So um, the system really controls the way that a lot of these educators work. And, and I, I know you've worked with students in the innovation course, the first course in our program. And the biggest challenge that I'm seeing, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I, I, I can really appreciate your input on this, is that getting them to simply choose something, take ownership, make it real, is one of the biggest hurdles we have to overcome. What are your thoughts on this? So there's a lot of things I think that are involved in this process, this, this thought process. And first of all, failure is huge. They don't wanna make a mistake. They don't wanna choose the wrong thing. They don't wanna be led in the wrong way. I think that lingers over them so, so great that they kind of forget what we're doing here. So once we kind of jump that hurt a little bit and let them know that we can massage and, and change a little bit of their idea, they run into the next hurdle, which is if they're in the classroom, my school-based driven idea. So as you were kind of introducing all of this, I was thinking back to my, my beginning when I was in school to become a teacher and they had to teach me how to teach. And I remember getting the, the, the textbook and the, and the teacher book back in school so that, you know, basically we could get an idea of, of what the kids would get, what would we would get, that kind of stuff. And we're going back, oh, sometime 80s. And I always, in the teacher manual, and maybe you've seen this, so the text of the student book is kind of minimized a little bit. And then on the sidebar, it says, teacher says, student says, teacher says, student says. And I thought to myself, how do they know what I'm going to say? How do they know what the kid's going to say? And what if they don't say that? And what am I supposed to do then? So my first reaction to teaching was, well, this is dumb. And I, I kind of think when I hear some of the teachers say, well, I'm not allowed to do that. Well, I have to ask my principal if I can do this. I'm not allowed to, to teach that way. I think back to that very rigid. You've got to flip genius hour. So in this session, um, I really want to explore the notion of genius hour, 20% mm -hmm. time, um, inquiry-based learning, all these ideas that um, the author A.J. Giuliani uh, recently posted on his blog, and he talked about the research behind these ideas and how effective it was and how important it is to incorporate these things into the classroom. Uh, now, um, in his post, he talked about the fact that somebody that he respects, Ewan McIntosh uh, from mm -hmm. the UK, yep. suggested that 20% time genius hour doesn't work and time could be better spent in other areas. And, and the reason that McIntosh said it doesn't work is that the system of education that we have doesn't really allow for this. <clears throat> Adding that 20% time without doing something to change the system isn't an effective use of time. So I think Macintosh identified an issue that I'd like to talk about today. And that is, these ideas are great in and of themselves, 20% time, genius hour, inquiry-based learning. They're wonderful, but if you use them as a treatment without changing the actual system of education, I don't think they're effective. Now, I, I wanna set the context a bit more. I would argue that if we want 20% time to be effective, or genius hours, or these other wonderful inquiry-based learning processes, we have to actually change thinking about learning. We have to change our approach to learning, and we have to change the learning environment. If mm -hmm. we don't really address those three factors, we are not going to get the most out of those um, activities like genius hour. So this is the context of where we're going. Thoughts before we dive in and, and really take this apart. 
Oh, there's too many of them. We don't have time. Uh, I totally agree. You can't just slap another Band-Aid on when it, when you need like a whole surgery. And that's kind of like what you're saying there because we can't, schools aren't set up to change the curriculum delivery per se, but the ideas that are out there and getting the kids invested in their choice and the, I, I want to learn about this really needs to happen because that's how our world is starting to unfold. The creativity is what's driving the world. Yeah, it, it is. Our world is changing and I don't think our schools are changing in they that regard. Now, both you and I have the privilege or honor of working in a program where we give students choice, ownership and voice through authentic learning opportunities. Originally, it was a digital learning leading program at Lamar University, and that has evolved into applied digital learning. And we work with hundreds of educators at a variety of levels, right from K to 12 to corporate training uh, to yep. people in higher ed. And in the first course where we start looking at their innovation project um, and then applying their innovation project, one of the biggest challenges that I'm seeing, and, and I, I want your input on this, is that most of these educators are constrained by the system. Learning is delivering content, sharing information, lecturing, maybe some group work, and then giving students assignments or tests where they verify that the content has been received and the students can at least do something with it in theory. That's learning, that's yeah. learning. No. And that's the environment that they have. And when we start asking them to come up with a project, whether it's blended learning, e-portfolios, makerspaces, coding, uh, project-based learning, all these wonderful opportunities, they like the idea, but they really do not understand how to do it. Not only do they not understand how to do it, you know, these people are working on a master's degree. They often have never been exposed to having the freedom to choose a project, to work on something authentic, and to take ownership of anything. So they themselves do not know how to experience this. And it's a very, very difficult process. So um, the system really controls the way that a lot of these educators work. And, and I, I know you've worked with students in the innovation course, the first course in our program. And the biggest challenge that I'm seeing, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I, I, again, I really appreciate your input on this, is that getting them to simply choose something, take ownership, make it real, is one of the biggest hurdles we have to overcome. What are your thoughts on this? So there's a lot of things I think that are involved in this process, this, this thought process. And first of all, failure is huge. They don't want to make a mistake. They don't want to choose the wrong thing. They don't want to be led in the wrong way. I think that lingers over them so, so great that they kind of forget what we're doing here. So once we kind of jump that hurt a little bit and let them know that we can massage and, and change a little bit of their idea. They run into the next hurdle, which is if they're in the classroom, my school based driven idea. So as you were kind of introducing all of this, I was thinking back to my my beginning when I was in school to become a teacher and they had to teach me how to teach. And I remember getting the, the textbook and the and the teacher book back in school so that you know basically we could get an idea of, of what the kids would get what would we would get that kind of stuff and we're going back oh sometime 80s and I always in the teacher manual and maybe you've seen this so the text of the student book is kind of minimized a little bit and then on the sidebar it says teacher says student says teacher says student says and i thought to myself how do they know what i'm going to say how do they know what the kids going to say and what if they don't say that and what am i supposed to do then so my first reaction to teaching was well this is dumb and i i kind of think when i hear some of the teachers say well i'm not allowed to do that well i have to ask my principal if i can do this I'm not allowed to to teach that way. I think back to that very rigid teacher book, teacher does, student does teach. And how do you know what works? So I find I find that they're kind of stuck in a place. Most of them want to get out of it, but they don't know how to get out of it. 
So a lot of it begins with just a little bit of trust with, with us, with the program, but it's, it's a mindset shift that we all learn differently and to kind of embrace that. And I, I just don't think they understand because, well, all teachers have been students and they have been spoon fed. They have been schooled. So they know how to go to school. I give, you take, I give, you take. Maybe we reverse it, but only for a second. And when you don't have that prescription, they're lost. They, they can't fill in the blanks. I see that in my everyday life when I try with the kids that I get at my, my uh, makerspace, if you will. They don't know how to start, but once they get started, they don't know how to stop. They just keep on going down their path. So I, I, I feel like once our learners get started, they're going. But to get them started, it's like a nightmare. They think they're doing something wrong. Like, no, this isn't how you do it. But they can see that this is how you do it. So there's just that, I don't know, that fine line of uh, like when you cross over to success, you, you're not quite there and they struggle with that. I think the, the key thing that you said is that it is a mindset shift. And, and that's why um, in the latest iteration of what we've been doing in grad school, the Applied Digital Learning and Leading uh, pro, applied Digital Learning Program, what we've been focusing on is moving learners towards that learner's mindset. And part of that is a change in the way of thinking. And, and you, I think you identified something that um, is crucial to understand. Most of our educators or most people have been schooled. They have been educated and they know how the system works. They know that it is that matter of delivering information, getting that information, verifying you have it, and making sure your answer is right. So there's this desire to have the right answer. There's this, there's this desire for the A. And this is especially hard for A students because they know <laughs> how to get the A. And when they come into an environment where they are given choice, ownership, and voice through authentic learning opportunities, when they're asked to become learners and to consider how learning works, their first reaction is, well, I, I, this is different. This is not the way the system works. I don't know how to get an A in this system. And there is paralysis and there's yeah. a fear. There's a fear of failure and there's a fear that they don't want to make a mistake. And they don't recognize that part of the learning process is that failing forward, is that error correction. And so, like you said, it's that shift from a teacher's mindset to the learner's mindset. But until we do that, there is that paralysis. It, it is, it's shocking to see. I, I know once we get into this after the first course and mm -hmm. by the second or third course in the program, once they adopt that learner's mindset and they recognize that the growth mindset is something they need to incorporate as well on the road to the learner's mindset, once they start shifting their thinking about learning, they then fully embrace that approach to learning where they have choice and ownership and voice through authentic learning opportunities. Then they see those authentic learning opportunities projects as something that can change their world. It changes everything, but you, you also identify something that is, is challenging. They don't know when to stop. They don't know how to self-regulate. They don't mm -hmm. know how to self-assess because they're so used to doing what they're being told. They look for a rubric. Well, the rubric is going to tell me exactly what Checklist. I need to do. Yeah. Go ahead. We don't have any checklists. Yeah. You know, teacher says, student does. Teacher says, it doesn't work. Because I can, I can meet all those boxes. I can, I can check everything off and not learn a darn thing. So, what's up? Like, so we got to figure out what that next learning situation is. Like coining, coining the words is is even difficult because. It could just go in so many branches. Yeah, it does. I, I think I think we've we've found a bit of a, a method in in the ADL program, and I, I'm, I'm again going back to the learner's mindset. Those three pieces, um, and what we do is we start learners down the path of looking at the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. Mm -hmm. And the fixed mindset is the checklist. Here's something interesting too. 
many students in our program are quite angry with us because they go to our <laughs> rubrics and our rubrics are vague. There's no checklist. They don't say and, anything. And, and they go to the rubric as opposed to the assignment instructions, because, well, the rubric is going to tell me how I get the A. I'm not interested in the assignment. I just need to check off these boxes and I'll get the A. So most students are very efficient. They're very quite productive. They know how to get the A. And so when they look at our rubrics where we um, talk about, well, did you apply the content effectively or the theories and the ideas to your actual situation? You know, are you addressing your audience? And they're thinking, well, who's the audience? You're my audience, you know, Dr. H or Dr. Sue. You're my audience. Well, no, I'm not. You're building an innovation strategy for your learning environment, your colleagues, your administration. That's your audience. Getting their head around these ideas is, is so challenging. Uh, but once we start to move them down the path and they can embrace that, it, it does change everything. But once they start to embrace it in our programs and, and through the work that we do with a learner's mindset, there is also this realization that our system is mm -hmm. very well entrenched. <clears throat> the state standards, right? The national standards, yep. you know, the, the district standards, right? Well, my principal is not going to allow me to do that. Well, in, in all honesty, your principal doesn't have the faintest idea what's really happening in the classroom. And just as long as your test scores are okay, your principal is going to be fine with what you do. Now, when we tell that to our students in our graduate programs, some of the newer ones are aghast. Oh, how can I go against the principal? Well, you're not. You're not. You're, you're helping teaching. your students to learn. You're going to help students prepare for the test, but you can also prepare them for life. And that's what we want students to do. We want to prepare them for life. And guess what? When you do that, if you do it well enough, it, you'll also prepare them for the test. Uh, I couldn't agree with that anymore. And I've been I've been talking about that for years that if you're engaged in the process, the communication skills pick up, the problem solving skills pick up, the um, critical thinking skills pick up. I have a little guy who's not very strong in math, but when it's a multiple choice, like work out the problem and then pick A, B, C, or D for the right answer, <clears throat> he does very little math. <clears throat> Excuse me, he can estimate kind of get rid of the two outlier questions, get it down to two and say, well, if this happens, then that can't be the answer. Like, and I'll say, okay, how did you get the answer? And he'll go through this whole explanation, but he doesn't do the math. So I said, well, this is okay until the math gets a little more complicated. Yeah. And then your powers that you're doing now, your reasoning powers, they're not gonna work exactly. And now we're at that stage where they don't work exactly. And he's getting so frustrated because he can't use his reasoning powers versus his math powers. So he's got some good skills for life. Now we got to work on solving the equation, if you will, not worrying about what the answer choices are. Yeah, I, I'm going to use this as a segue into where I'd really like to focus on in, in our session today, dealing with this idea. Uh, of preparing students, not just for life, but for the test, and this idea of genius hour. So I'm, I'm going to go back to Giuliani's mm -hmm. uh, post, and he talks about the fact that if you do genius hour well, if you do project-based learning well, if you do 20% time well, if you do inquiry-based learning well, well, then you the students are going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Now, the 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 problem with his uh, post is that he really didn't describe what the well is. How do you actually do that well? And and I think when he referred to Ewan McIntosh's post as well, Ewan pointed out the fact that the mm -hmm. system often prevents you from doing that well mm -hmm. because the system requires you to check those boxes off the list, right? The state standards require that you cover that. If you're in Texas, you've got the STAR test, or if you're in different regions of the world, you've got different, you know, right. uh, you've got different exams on an annual basis that students have to be prepared for. So um, how do we prepare the student for the test as well as how do we prepare them for life? Well, I, I would argue that it's actually what you do in your iBuild Academy. It really is. If, if you've helped students develop those 
critical and analytical thinking skills through project-based learning, through doing real-world tasks, through that critical analysis, through self-evaluation, through developing the higher-order thinking skills of analysis, evaluation, evaluation. I'm going to repeat that one more time, evaluation, <laughs> right? That, that ability to evaluate what you're doing. And then the synthesis and the creation can come about. Um, and if you prepare students by doing those things, the test taking skills um, are going to be improved, but you also have to prepare them for the test. And this is where I would argue that we need to flip genius hour or 20% time. If we do these, you know, in the typical classroom, you want to do this task for 20% of the time, and then you spend 80% of the time preparing students for the test. Wow, uh, you're really just preparing them for the test. You're not really preparing them for life. I would argue that we want to flip that. If we focus on these project-based activities, authentic learning opportunities, what you do in iBuild, right? Coding, programming, creating, making, all this wonderful stuff, problem solving, uh, addressing real world issues in your community and, and creating solutions for those issues. If you do all those things, you, you're preparing students for life because they have the, they're getting the critical analytical thinking skills. But as you talked about with this young guy, you know what, at some point you've got to do the math. So at some point you've got to do the formula. At some point you have to give the, mm -hmm. the state standard that is being asked in that test. So what do we do? Well, I would argue that if we focus on test taking skills and really focus on preparing students to do the test, you know, there, there's a Scientific America article called What Works, What Doesn't? And it identifies five key factors for test taking. And Test taking skills, this is a well-established process. You know, you've got interleaved practice, you've got comparison, you've got uh, quizzing oneself. Um, you, you've got a variety of different activities that you can do to prepare for the test. Practicing the test is another skill. You have to practice a test. And so if we do a really, really thorough job of helping kids or adults to prepare for the test when they need to prepare for the test, and, and we we dissuade them from underlining or highlighting, rereading. <laughs> we dissuade them from all the foolish things. Here's something else, cramming the night before. No, one of the key factors in test taking is repetition over time. <laughs> you have to do this over time, right? You, you've got these five key factors. If we had teachers focusing on those and, and really helping students to get very efficient at becoming um, efficient at taking tests, guess what? Then the rest of the time that you could spend the 80% time, you could focus on the genius hour and it could be, you know, genius time. It could be not 20% time. It could be 80% time. So if we the did that, time. yeah, knowledge time, creation, <clears throat> deeper learning, all those mm -hmm. wonderful things. And we've got the wrong mix. We've got the wrong mix, but we also have a system right now that promotes the wrong mix. Mm -hmm. So how, how do we help teachers who are in the system to recognize that they need to just flip that? What, what, I, I've thrown out an idea, and, and you and I need to write this book. I know, I know Dr. Thibodeau <laughs> and I have been talking about this, and this is a book. We, this, this, this discussion is the start of, you know, maybe we're going to build an outline for this book. Right, right. Uh, it needs to be written because nobody else has addressed this. And, and you're living it. You're living it. I'm living well, it. We're doing kids, it in the ADL. How do we, what, what do we do next? What are your I, thoughts? There's so many. I'm, I'm, I'm running out of time. There, there's just so many. Kids run into my place. Parents say, all they do, is it Tuesday? Is it Tuesday? Is it Tuesday? Can I go? Can I go? So when they come in and I hear that, the first thing I ask them is, why do you want to come here? Like, what's, what, what's so exciting about being here? I get to build stuff. And you let me build anything I want. You let me try things, even if they don't work. So if they don't work, that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, kind of playing devil's advocate a little bit, but I get the most wonderful answers out of them. And um, I really don't think schools give kids opportunity. I think they, they are squelching them from like kindergarten, first grade, almost immediately that natural wonder is poof and now they become schooled and they just do as minimal as possible to answer to the next question as minimal as possible uh, when i first opened my makerspace that was some of the hurdles i had um, that, let's say the kids were going to make a um, 
they're going to build some kind of vehicle that rolls. Okay, whatever that might be. And they, they build it and the wheels didn't turn. Well, I built it. Okay, yeah, you, you did, but I think there's a problem. Well, it's okay. No, it's not okay. It has to roll. That's, that's what a vehicle does. It moves from one point to the next. Well, I built it. I said, this isn't school. We can try again. It doesn't matter. We're not going to run out of time. Oh, I can take it apart and do it again. They, they were stunned. So that whole mindset, we've been schooled. There's never enough time in school to, I don't want to say make it perfect because I don't think there's a perfect, but to complete the task. You know, even, even math tests, we take the test, we get a really good grade, we move on. We take the test, we get a so-so grade, oh, we move on. We take the test and we do really, really terrible. We still move on. So then our gaps get bigger. There's no time to remediate. I don't want to say remediate, but there's no time to continue teaching. we got to move on. So our system, I, I I'm just keep thinking about your 80-20 there, the flipped. I'm like, how cool would that be to have kids rush into the classroom and go to their specific thing and just watch them learn? Just watch them try. Just watch them because you know somebody's going to go, hey, I like that. But if you did this, I think it would be better. And you know someone's going to say, can I try that too? That looks fun. You know that's going to happen. Why do we take that away? Um, learning is uh, fun, engaging. Learning is, the, the key word for me is social. Once you take that social away and everybody becomes an island, we're not going anywhere. If you look at all the things that have the crowdsourcing, all of the way the, the tools, the internet, the virtual tools have helped us solve problems of how to reconnect with uh, maybe you were adopted and you're trying to find a birth parent, how to, how to find them. Like without the internet, it wouldn't be possible. When we were growing up, we had a library and a teacher. That was our, and parents. That was our foundation of learning. The kids have everything. The first time I had to teach <laughs> um, Adobe Photoshop, I had no idea. I just was one of the few in our department that said, okay, I have no idea, no big deal, I'll go do it. The kids were teaching it. Someone said, you don't know how to do this? I said, no, I've never even, what is it even for? And every day a new kid would be the instructor and teaching us a skill. And by like six or seven weeks in, we were all editing photos and mashing them up before it became popular. They taught me. They would go, and I would say, how did you learn this so fast? Well, I have it at home and that's all I do. So they spend eight, 12, 15 hours a day immersed in this software because they thought it was like, wow, this is so, look what I can do. School doesn't allow you that. You get maybe 22 minutes. You get an odd number of minutes because you know we got to go on. Our environment, our work environment for learning has got to be overhauled. If, if we could just let teachers do their thing, it would get overhauled. But then we have all of these layers, the admin layer, the political layer, the financial layer, all these layers taking away teaching. I don't know how to fix that, but it's got to be fixed. Well, I do know how to fix it. I open up a bunch of my own maker spaces. <laughs> well, you've really hit on some key things. We do have a systemic problem, and, and I, I don't see a solution to that. And, and like you, um, I, I have been, worked in a variety of different capacities, mm -hmm. whether it's on the front line in the classroom. I've even been a senior executive in a university. I've been a chair, a dean. I, I've worked at every level. Uh, of education and I'm recognizing that the system is a system. Mm -hmm. And so what what we do with the ADL program, what I do with the learner's mindset is that I'm trying to change a world one learner at a time. And if I can help educators to recognize that they need to shift their thinking from teaching to learning, to creating the significant learning environment where they give students choice, ownership and voice through authentic learning opportunities. They do that by changing their thinking about learning. 
<laughs> learning is making those meaningful connections. Learning is engaging in the world. Learning is engaging in the whole world. You know, we, ha we have the world in the palms of our hands. We have the social dynamic of learning that is available to us in a much more significant way than when you and I were young. Think about, yeah, you're right. You know, I, I lived in rural Northern Canada where we had a really crappy library and we didn't have <laughs> anything other than, you know, teachers and, and the school, the school, the, the ride on the bus home was my biggest social context other than playing, you know, community sports. So right now with the dynamic of, of, you know, the connectivity throughout the entire world, it's never been a better time to be a learner. So getting our, our educators to shift their thinking away from teaching to creating learning and being learning facilitators is a key thing. The COVA approach, choice, ownership, and voice for authentic mm -hmm. learning opportunities, creating those significant learning environments, looking at the fact that whether we're online, whether we're face-to-face, -face, we're in a blended format, learning happens all around us all the time and everywhere. And that's one of the most significant things. So one of the things that we promote in the ADL program is blended learning, meaning you learn all the time and everywhere. That's all blended learning really is. This yep. idea of the flipped classroom. I know we're talking about flipping genius hour. I'm simply taking advantage of that term. I completely disagree with the idea of flipping classroom. You're taking a crappy lecture and putting it online, it's still a crappy lecture. Just because a student can rewind it doesn't mean it's any better. It's still a crappy lecture. So flipping the classroom is not what we really want to do. We want to change the learning environment. And I think you're doing it. I'm doing it. And I think one of the most significant thing, things that we're doing is, is that we engage each individual. And once we reignite that learner's mindset, once we re reignite the fact that they can actually fail, because that's part of the learning process, mm -hmm. not only do they look forward to failing, they want to fail quickly and often so that they can get to the, to fixing the wheels. To okay. make it go. Hmm. The wheels don't work. How do I fix that? Oh, let's try this. Hmm, that didn't work. Oh, oh this worked a little bit. Now, what if I twisted this? Hey, Bobby, Susie, what do you think? Well, yep. you forgot about this. Oh, I didn't think about that. Okay, great. Problem solved, right? That's so the story you, every day. Yeah, you, you bring in voices. So flipping genius hour is really not necessarily flipping the classroom. It's really recognizing that if we allow our students to really learn in that collaborative environment, if we create that significant learning environment where they can take ownership, they have the choice, they work on real things. Well, guess what? They will come together with their colleagues, their peers, with their learning community, and they will become self-directed learners. They will become autodidactic learners where they use failure, where they use experimentation, where they use exploration. More importantly, Importantly, they use assessment as learning. Self-evaluation, evaluation of what they're doing becomes key. Assessment for learning is that peer interaction because they, they, they say, hey, what does this look like? What do you think? And then their peers come in and they advise them. And then you know what? We spend a little bit of time and deal with that assessment for learning, deal with the summative testing. Guess, guess what? There's always going to be state standards or, or di uh, divisional standards. There's always going to be standards, right? Somebody, mm -hmm. the government is always going to want to measure something. Guess what? Prepare them for that measurement too. And, and But that doesn't take 80% of our time. That should be right. relegated to 20% of our time. So I think this is where we are kind of landing. Um, other thoughts on this before we wrap well, up? Yeah, so, so there's two things here. First of all, I think that I'm seeing a shift in our students' thought process from our DLL to our ADL program with the social, the getting together, the constant learning, um, the small virtual groups that they're forming, they're solving their problems behind the scenes. Somebody might be asking a question to, to one of us, but they're figuring the roadway, they're figuring the map which is a little bit of a shift from when we first rolled out a few years ago. Um, I, and I like, I like that they're taking the ownership of their learning, which I really see that starting to happen. The second thing is, I, I don't think standards are a bad thing um, with regard to the roadmap, because we kind of want to know where we're heading. But how we get there is what learning is all about. You know, if I want to drive from Florida to the state of Washington and go across the country, um, Google Maps might take me the quickest possible way, but I don't really want to do that. I want to kind of like tour the country along the way. To me, that isn't any different than, okay, I know Johnny needs to read, but he has absolutely no interest in it, and he's six years old. So I'm going to try this um, approach because there's things he's got to read. 
in order to get better at this. So we can do block programming where he just has to read forward, backwards, left, right, and he can make his robot go. But if he wants his robot to do a little more stuff, he's got to pick up a few more words. So I'm not teaching reading, but I'm teaching reading. I do the same thing with, with games when the kids are going to design a video game. And I have some kids who are emergent readers. They're not super good because to improve your game, all these little clues pop up. Do this, do this, try this, look at this. And usually my non-readers close them. They just close them. And then the kids who are reading, they're like, I didn't think of that. Let me try it. And then the non-readers like, how did you know to do that? Where? And then all of a sudden you start seeing, and parents are telling me, reading's getting better, math skills. He can sit longer and, and try something. And to me, that's what it's all about. So I, I see the shift in our learners, learning a social problem solving, 24 hours a day type of thing. You know, I might not be on all 24, but I know you're so many hours around me, you're working, then I come on, I catch up. That asynchronous synchronous deal works great. And then the roadmap, where do you want to go? So I see those, uh, there's so much we could do. I just see it happening. But again, like you say, one learner, one place at a time until, I, I always looked at it before like a grassroots movement. We're gonna start here where the action is. And then once we start becoming successful, people are gonna start talking. It's all, always that kid that walks out of your class like super excited and then they've gotta go and to, to the English class that they don't like. And all they do is talk about what went on in my class. And the English teacher gets like, what are you doing in there? All they do is talk about your class. I don't know, I'm just, we're having fun. Are you having fun? You're not having fun, that's why. So, you know, yeah, so it, it helps with the roadmap. Yeah, you're really addressing some key issues. And, and I think that's always important because whenever people hear some of the things that we're saying, they're saying, well, we've got to throw out the old system. Right. Well, actually, you can't. You're going to go back. You, you're in it. So what you need to do is you have to work within it, but be much more effective in it. The constraints that we have, they're actually good. Constraints are important. Um, it, it's well established in the research. If you give an architect a flat piece of land, he's not going to create anything interesting. If you give him a really difficult piece of land with hills and all kinds of problems and challenges, the creativity flows. So constraints and standards, these are actually useful things that help guide and direct us, and they will give us um, uh, boundaries to work within. Mm -hmm. And that's important because that gives us the flexibility to make those adjustments that deal with the boundaries. And that's right. where the creative creativity comes in. So yeah, we're not throwing out the standards. We're actually using them as effective boundaries mm -hmm. and constraints, but we're also recognizing that you can satisfy the standards in a very effective way. If you do these certain things, you address those state standards, you address those divisional standards, you address those requirements that might be required for your, your accrediting body. So you address those, but you're also preparing the learner for life. And that's where those creative endeavors come into play, those authentic opportunities, you know, and, and you, you touched on something about the purpose. So these, these young kids who are emergent readers will grow to read because reading enables them to do more reading right. enables them to be more creative reading enables them to actually experiment and to explore more and then they recognize that reading well that's just what i need to become more efficient at what i do so reading becomes a useful part of their life as opposed to something they need to do to be able to pass a test as soon as you bring in that are just horrific yeah the autonomy, right? You know, Daniel Pink and his drive, a little bit of autonomy, a little bit of mastery combined with that purpose. Guess what? That's what kids want. You, you touched on something that's really important. You know, we, 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 we school kids by grade three, grade four, they're going, is this going to be on the test? Yep. Right. And, and it's unfortunate, but yet kids are very quick. They see how the system works and they'll work within the system. And you've also talked about something I think is important. And this is something we address in our organizational change course. When Johnny and Susie are going, well, did you know what I did in iBuild? Or do you know what I did in, in, in Miss Sue's class or Dr. Thibodeau's class? Why can't we do the same thing here? Yeah, at some point, your kids, your students are going to raise enough of a ruckus where your colleagues are going to go, hey, Sue, what the heck are you doing? These kids are driving me nuts. 
can you show me what it is that you're doing? How come they like your class so much and they hate mine? What are you doing that's different? Yeah. Oh, so that's those projects that the real world, oh, you give them, oh, how can you give them choice? That means you've got to let go of control. Yeah, yeah, you do, but it's okay. I'll help you get through that, right? So again, we're changing their thinking about learning, shifting from teaching to learning. We're changing their approach to learning rather than delivering content. You give them some choice, ownership and voice for authentic learning opportunities. We help them to change the learning environment. The learning environment, guess what? In, in our connected world, it's everywhere. It's all the time and everywhere, right? It is in the palms of our hands. It's on our laps. It's on our iPads or other devices. It is on the bus on the way to school. It is Oof. in their bedroom at home. It is in the corporate boardroom when people are doing something underneath the table and sitting in a board yeah. meeting. That's learning. And, and I think we have an opportunity to change the world. And, and you've got a grassroots movement going. Um, you're engaged in the grassroots movement that we have going in the ADL program. And, and we are seeing huge impacts. I'm looking at some of our graduates uh, who graduated out of the DLL. And now we've got, we've got a graduating class who's going to be starting their last this, two classes in the yeah. ADL program next month. And I'm excited because there are probably a dozen students who are just going to be rocking their kids worlds and it's going to spread and there's going to be a lot of people going hey what's going on in your classroom hey how, how do you do that oh well, you got to change your thinking about learning a little bit and you know what you change your approach think about giving your students some choice give them some real projects but let them choose what they're going to do and then when they choose they've got to take ownership don't discount the fact that kids work together that social dynamic as you've mentioned in the adl program the biggest shift we've made from the adl or from the dll to the adl is that we've added that very yeah. significant assessment as learning component those learning communities i got an email yesterday from a student saying you know i was meeting with my group the, the other day and everybody was saying that this is what we need to do i i don't think so i can mm -hmm. you clarify i think we need to do this and sure enough she was right i sent off a, a, it that raised an attention yeah. there's an issue going on there's a question there's some clarity i posted an announcement to the entire class but that group dynamic came together and you know they're debating what they needed to really do right and i'm seeing a lot of that yeah the one learner who was going well you know what in order for me to do what everybody else is doing, that means I'm going to have to ignore what I really need to do for my project. But I think what I need to do for my project is a priority. Other students were still caught up in, well, this is what the instructor wants. So it, it's exciting because it takes a little while for those students who recognize that it's the project, right. it's that innovation plan that is driving the boundaries that's where the constraints come it's not necessarily the professor right sure you've got some assignments you need to submit but those assignments and the criteria for those assignments are dependent upon your actual project mm -hmm. and the few students who get that become sort of the lightning rod for other students and they they share that insight and then once the whole learning community group because we have students working in groups of three to five once all four or five get it it just changes the dynamic and they recognize that that group is essential to the learning process and then they share that with their people and that's how we get to spread these ideas so i i, I think we are flipping the genius hour I, I think we're actually doing it now we just need to actually write about it more effectively and and spread the word and then you know i, I think maybe we should reach out to aj giuliani and say hey listen we have some ideas that might help you Right. So and yeah. you work within your constraints. So and, and we can and do it, that because we have that technology that we have that circle that we can reach out. Yeah. Yeah. A any thoughts on, on closing up? Any any last minute takeaways before we wrap this up? Um, I what well, OK, so one of the things that I like is the reflective process. And this whole conversation has given me a, a little opportunity here to look back when DLL was first formed. And we were kind of thinking about how we were going to go through this journey and how we were going to convey to them about their project. You know, a lot of programs have projects that the kids, the students have to do and, and they end up with the project at the end of the year. And it's, it's just a project. I think what we're doing here is we're ending up with our project, but it's ongoing, it's continuing, it's being tweaked. It's, it's, it's constantly, um maybe reinventing itself based on things that we learn and add to it based on conversations that we have 
it makes it like you say changing and yeah i do think i do think we're doing the 80 percent because the 20 even in our program in the adl 20 percent is kind of like uh organizing the assignment that they're going to turn in talking about well it should have this component and and we should be able to identify this but it, like it's so vague because it has to be personable to each one of them so it's the whole conversation's given me a chance to reflect over time the last six or seven years of what we've been trying to accomplish it's uh it's interesting that you mentioned this notion of reflecting over time i i, I did a blog post yesterday um uh, the other week, I brought Dr. Thibodeau in to the organizational change class to talk about how she is applying the wow. why, what, and how, the influencer strategy, the 40X, and crucial conversations in her new position as a, as a dean in the Honors College. And she talked about how she's, she's brought all these ideas together in a synthesis. And so as I was uh, looking to create some context for the learner's mindset discussion on the synthesis of organizational change, I went through my blog and over the past 10, 12 years, I've been writing about organizational changes and, and, and what's working, what's not working. And I went back to a post I made in 2010 and I thought, hmm, yeah, I was kind of stuck on Cotter's eight points. And then over the next three, four years, because of a series of failures, I had to make some adjustments. And then I started to incorporate this idea of looking at the purpose, the why, and then changing people's behavior through the influencer model, and then bringing in some type of a systems approach, the 40X. And then I, I had used a, a notion of failure of nerve for self-differentiated leadership so that people can really take a charge and, and, mm -hmm. and say, hey, this isn't working. But I also recognize that in this day and age, having that conversation is difficult. So I incorporated crucial conversations. And so as I created a context for that learner's mindset discussion, I, I went through a synthesis of how I went over the last 12 years, thinking one way about organizational change and to thinking about it in a different way. So I did that reflective process through my writing. Mm -hmm. You and I are doing that reflective process. And that's what deeper learning is all about. Deeper when our learning. students come together in those groups of three, four or five, they do that reflective process. Mm -hmm. Once that light bulb goes on, once they hear their ideas and, and bounce their ideas off of others, they start to recognize that that personal self-evaluation or that group evaluation, which is assessment for learning, but that assessment as learning where they become self-evaluators, when they combine their group feedback and their self-assessment, they are able to make significant changes much more rapidly. They can fail, but they can make adjustments more quickly because they don't have to just do it in isolation. It isn't just trial and error. It becomes a group of people who are bouncing ideas around. That self-reflective process is so uh, instrumental to learning. And, and as you had said, you know, we've added that now in, in, in the ADL and it's really changing everything. And now we just have to add it to the rest of the world and uh, <laughs> we will be able to change the world one learner at a time. Well, listen, Sue, I, I, I want to thank you again for uh, this reflective opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I think we've address that. And, and now we're going to have to have another meeting to talk about the outline for the book that you and I, I are going to have to write, because I, I think we really need to do that. At least let's let's get an article going. Um, I, I've been working with a few of the ADL students, and I'm going to be doing some uh, conversations. I'm, I'm doing some uh, group meetings to take a look at the students who did the DLL first, and then they moved to the ADL. So okay. we have a we have a we have a group of students who did both. And I think from that, we'll, we should get an article going and then that article might become the foundation for this book there that you we, go. we're going to have to write. So one at thank, a time. Yeah, one at a time, one learner at a time, one idea at a time, one book at a time. <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much. All right.